0: This is The Guardian. I'm Gabrielle Jackson and this is The Full Story, Newsroom Edition, where Guardian Australia's editors discuss the news of the week. We're more than halfway through the election campaign and voters are signalling their disaffection. Labor and the Coalition are on track for their lowest ever primary vote, as minor parties and the teal independents battle to woo voters across the political spectrum. The government and some sections of the media have issued dramatic warnings about the consequences of a minority government. But are these scare campaigns backed up by the facts? Today, I'm talking to Editor-in-Chief Lenore Taylor and Head of News Mike Tisher about turning away from the two-party system and a potential hung parliament. It's Friday, the 6th of May. Good morning, Lenore. Morning, Gabrielle. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. So, we're more than halfway through this election campaign now.
1: Lenore, how are the major parties going? Okay, okay, Gabrielle, okay, listeners. I think we are at the point where we have to start doing the electoral maths. And the maths in this case is uh, imprecise and complicated but also kind of compelling, and it explains a lot. I think the first thing we need to know is that the national polls are of very limited use. If you average them out, then there's been an over 5% swing to Labor since the last election, and they should be about to romp home to a majority government, but that is not what appears to be the case when you look at things on an electorate basis. Mm. Looking at things on an electorate basis is quite tricky. You have to sort of look at straws in the wind, if you like, like where the leaders are going a lot, where the parties are shoveling all their financial largesse, which opponents they're attacking in the most over-the-top kind of way. I mean, you can pick signs if you look at the maths, the coalition has 76 seats in a 151-seat parliament, so they can't lose any. Labor has 68 seats. There's been a redistribution, but they need to win seven or eight seats and lose none of their existing seats in order to get a majority. If you look at those draws in the wind, Labor maybe might win five or six, maybe Swan in Western Australia. The woman who introduced Albo at Labor's uh, launch was the candidate in Swan, so that's an indication. Mm -hmm. Maybe they might win Brisbane, maybe Reid, maybe Bass, maybe Boothby, maybe a few more, but they might lose a few, like one of the outer urban marginals in Melbourne, like Corangamite. So, like, let's say there's a net five seats to Labor, But the coalition has probably lost more than those five because of the independents that we've talked about before, those Mm. six independents in the inner city seats who are in with a real show, and they seem to be sort of building some momentum in the seats. So let's say the independents win three of those, that would leave the coalition with just 68 seats. If you look at the crossbench, the four kind of existing climate-minded sort of centrist left of centre independents, and maybe another three, let's say three out of those six, that puts the coalition way back on, say, 68. That's a long way short of 76. Mm. And so that maths is what explains that Morrison's only path to victory, it would seem to me, is to minimise the losses to the independents by attacking them, focusing as hard as he possibly can on the outer suburban and regional seats where he's still in with a real chance. And everything he's saying about the issues important to those independents would back the view that he's actually thinking it's a lost cause for him to try to negotiate with them in the event of a hung parliament. So I think the electoral maths is looking really interesting at the moment, and I think it's meaning that the two major parties are kind of running quite different campaigns right now.
0: Mike, one thing is clear in all the polls, that both major parties seem to have very low primary votes. What is that about?
2: Well, this is a very long-term trend uh, and also a global trend in, in, in lots of ways. The share of the primary vote for the major parties has been declining pretty steadily for decades, really. But the last federal election in 2019, Labor's got 33.34% of the primary vote. That was its lowest since the, before the Second World War. Coalition got 41%, uh, which was also historically low. And as we mentioned already, the polls this time are showing them in the mid-30s each. So they're heading for about 70, 71, if the polls are correct. So that's like 30% of the electorate is either voting for minor parties, independents, not voting at all, which is also increasing slightly despite... And the fact that it's compulsory, or spoiling their ballots, which is also showing more uh, increases. Uh, it's a very small percentage, but it's still going up noticeably.
1: I think the quite astonishing thing to me is that, for at least some of the um, members of the government or in the major parties and some commentators, they look at that, at that steady decline, and they think. No, the problem can't be with the parties. It can't be with what the parties are doing. The problem must be the voters and the independent and minor parties that the voters are turning to. I just find that kind of astounding conclusion to draw from a historical trend that stark.
2: Yeah, and I mean, I guess the reason for that partly is the way the electoral system works. It usually spits out the two, well, it always spits out the two major parties together on after preferences, and one or other of them wins a majority of seats. But that obviously doesn't mean that they are winning a majority. Well, it certainly doesn't mean they're winning a majority of the votes, but it, it masks their decline in primary votes, which represents a, you know, Disillusion on all sides of politics, like we we can see it on the right with One Nation, Clive Palmer to some extent, various independents as well on the right and on the left and now these new brand of teal independents and the Greens taking votes away from Labor on the left. or Well, in some cases, taking votes away from the Liberals to their left, to the centre as well. So it's kind of all, yeah, in every direction, people are peeling off the main parties. It's probably only when it comes to being a hung parliament that they really might have to take it seriously, I think, or more seriously than they have done until now. Some of
0: the criticism has been you know, bordering on hysterical. There was a column this week by Greg Sheridan that said a vote for the Greens or the Teal Independents is a direct threat to national security.
1: Is this a reasonable conclusion to make? Well, as they don't sort of have strong policies on national security, uh, I can't really see how he reaches that conclusion. That's why it's a
2: threat. (laughs)
1: But the most extraordinary conclusion he reached, as far as I was concerned, was that it was undemocratic, that they were exploiting compulsory preferential voting in a way that was undemocratic. He said, when preferential voting worked, it forced every voter to choose between one of the two main parties while registering a protest vote along the way if they liked. The Westminster system relies on a party or coalition hammering out internal compromises to present a coherent program. Single issue independence are the absolute opposite of this. Now, I just feel like that's an extraordinary lack of understanding of preferential voting, mm. and I would recommend to him Matilda Bosley's Voting 101 on the subject, <laughs> but but also an extraordinary lack of understanding of the Westminster system, which requires only that the government is chosen by the democratically elected lower house and has the continuing support of a majority of members of the lower house. There's no mention of parties, not there, not in the constitution, and we've had minority governments that functioned perfectly well before, Julia Gillard's being a case in point, multi- party coalitions are a norm in many democracies around the world, including in countries like New Zealand. And in our own system, governments of all persuasions have had to negotiate with independents and minor parties in the Senate. And they haven't always liked it, but they've managed to get legislation through. Nonetheless, it sort of got under their skin, but they've done it. And I just feel like the idea that People using preferential voting the way it's meant to be used to go for parties that they actually are inspired by, the idea that that is somehow undemocratic is quite astonishing to me.
0: Don't the Liberal Party and the National Party have to negotiate to govern as a coalition? That's
2: literally called a coalition. Yeah.
0: (laughs) You know, I keep hearing members of government saying that a hung parliament is so terrible because Julia Gillard's government, as you just mentioned, Lenore, was absolute chaos. I mean, you were there. How fair is that assessment?
1: Well, it was a bit chaotic, but it wasn't the independents' fault. That was Labor's own work. It was all (laughs) the stuff they did to themselves. Actually, in terms of getting legislation through, it was pretty efficient. And our own Nick Evershed actually looked at the data and looked at how many bills were passed. And Julia Gillard's government was the most efficient in passing bills. It was better than any other government ever. And he's just redone the data and it was better than the Morrison government. So any chaos at that time, it was difficult. They had to talk to people, but they had you know, a variety of independents who approached their task with goodwill and application to the detail. And they managed to pass a lot of big reforms, the NDIS, Child Abuse Royal Commission, a carbon price, education funding, paid parental leave. Like that government was not chaotic and was not ineffective.
2: I think a lot of the judgments at the time have to be looked at with the benefit of hindsight and looking at the way politics has developed since then, and whether the intervening years where we've seen three different Liberal Prime Ministers, I don't think you could argue that that period has been any less chaotic or dysfunctional or has, you know, endeared the electorate to the way politics has done any more than the hung parliament Mm. period.
0: It hasn't said to people, oh, God, that was so terrible, I must vote for the major parties now. please
2: bring back the stability of the Abbott, Turnbull, Morrison years.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And Mike, they are independents in Parliament now. What do we know about what they have achieved?
2: Obviously, it's much harder for independents to achieve much when they do not hold the balance of power, when they are not aligned with any particular party. They're just voting uh, as legislation comes up, have to pay out the power to put forward their own private members' bills, but they're very unlikely to succeed when the government has a solid majority. But nevertheless, I think they have been a good influence generally on the Parliament or An independent like Helen Haynes in Indi, for example, she introduced a bill for a federal integrity commission. Zali Stegall, of course, introduced the Climate Act. Obviously, they were both unsuccessful, but it's not just about what legislation gets passed. It's about the whole tenor of parliament. It's about changing the conversation. That's why the Sheridan argument is so silly in a way, because no one expects if they're electing an independent no one expects them to have a national security policy they'll vote on any legislation that affects national security or talk in debates on on national security in the way they see fit but no one expects them to be running the policy or costing their policies which was another of the complaints that he had that none of their policies were costed. They're changing the conversation they're trying to prod the parties in one direction or another according to the ideals that they've laid out very clearly in the case of the independents and I think in the people know what they're going to get also if they elect Bob Catter or Adam Bandt or Andrew Wilkie there it's very clear what kind of issues they're going to push and which direction they want to lead the conversation. And that's a perfectly respectable and actually valuable role in the parliament that someone who's unattached to a whole suite of connected policies can can have an influence. There's no um, disguise about what they want to do when they get into parliament. There's no, there's no subterfuge. You know full well that they're not going to form the government, but you hope that they'll influence the parties that do form the government to uh, move in one direction or another. And that seems perfectly democratic and actually healthy.
1: And that kind of goes to the point that some commentators make as well about the idea that it's somehow undemocratic and fake and terrible that the independents won't say which side of politics they would favour to form government if there's a hung parliament. I mean, the whole point of what they're doing is to hope for a hung parliament so that they could influence whichever party wins government. Now, Yes, as I said at the beginning, Scott Morrison is really digging in on the issues most important to the independents in ways that the independents wouldn't like, in particular, for instance, on an, a National Integrity Commission. But that's not their fault. They've said the issues that are important to them, the issues that they'll consider if a hung parliament situation arises. I mean, I think they'd be fake independents if they did say, we're running on these issues, but, you know, we're going to support whichever party, no matter what. And if you think about it, the idea that they're Labor supporters in disguise, a Labor majority wouldn't further their ends either. Their maximum power is if there is a hung parliament. So I just find those arguments kind of getting things quite backwards.
0: And I just wanted to ask you about that, Lenore, uh, the idea that Morrison's really digging in against the issues they're standing for, particularly on the Integrity Commission. As you outlined at the beginning... This is a hard path to victory for either party to get a majority. Is he just doing himself a disservice by kind of making it harder
1: for them to want to negotiate with him in the event of a hung parliament? I do think that the indications are that he's kind of given up on that scenario He thinks that there's no chance that he could take his party with him or maybe he doesn't want to give ground on the issues that they are saying are important to them, namely climate change policy and an integrity commission. And so his only path is to win enough other seats in regional Australia and the outer suburban marginals. And so, you know, it's sort of neither here nor there. He can dig in on these issues because he's sort of given up on that route to forming government.
2: It's odd, though, isn't it? Because you you wonder if there is actually a real groundswell of opinion in those seats that is actively opposed to an integrity commission or, you know, more transparency in politics or uh, politicians being, you know, given an easier ride when it comes to integrity issues. I mean, you can see that there is a, definitely a Obviously, a push for it in the seats where the teal independents are standing.
1: Uh, I don't think he's doing it for that. Re- I don't think he thinks it's a vote winner in yeah. the outer uh, ur- urbans. I think he just thinks he doesn't have to pander to the teal independents because mm. he's not going that way anyway.
2: But he's making a, he's making a very active, mm. aggressive thing yeah. out of it. It's, I is. wonder where, where the constituency is that finds that really attractive.
1: Does it feed into more disillusionment with politics? Well, I mean, it certainly wouldn't be welcomed by the Liberal MPs, many of them, you know, very capable and longstanding MPs who are fighting these teal independents. I'm sure they're not happy about some of the things that Scott Morrison has been saying on an integrity commission, which is important to their Voters. I mean, and you could make the same case. We're moving into that period of an election campaign where there's often very aggressive attack ads and there's these very sort of aggressive tactics being used against the Teal independents. And you do wonder whether that doesn't just reinforce the reasons that people might like them, you know, that they don't like that style of politics. I I, I don't know. I saw, I think Josh Frydenberg was really attacking his opponent, Monique Ryan, and I think... He's sort of shifted tactic now and is basically running a kind of Save Josh campaign. There was a super soft piece in every News Corp tabloid on Sunday saying how he was in the fight of his life and warning his electorate they couldn't vote against him and keep him, which, you know, I think that probably already worked out. So, you know, I think those Liberal MPs under threat really have to make a judgement about how they fight independence if the thing that people find appealing about the independence is that they do politics a bit differently.
2: Mm. And the integrity attack also points up the difference between the federal and state governments, where we've seen New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet, who no one would accuse of being a sort of on the left of the party by any means, has come out and said very, you know, very concisely and clearly that he's in favour of the New South Wales ICAC and that he doesn't think the attacks on it have any substance. So, again, fail to see how that is really a great look for Morrison.
0: We've talked a lot about the Teal independence, but there are other minor parties that voters are turning towards. Who are they,
2: Mike? Well, I guess the main one that we're very familiar with is the Greens, who there was a poll this week that put them at a quite surprising 15% of the vote vote. I would... Surprising and possibly inflated. Well, you would definitely wouldn't want to lay too much stress on just one poll, especially one that is uh, quite a large outlier to all, all the other ones, which have them more like 10. But they have hopes of gaining at least one more lower house seat. Some they're focusing quite heavily on Queensland where they're looking at one seat held by Labour, Griffith. They're also targeting Richmond and northern New South Wales and they're looking at a couple in Victoria as well held by Labour, And then also Brisbane and Ryan in Queensland held by the Liberals and perhaps some inner-city Melbourne ones, although less likely. I think probably the Queensland ones are their main hopes. But um, if the major party vote share continues to decline, as it seems like it will do from the polls, then you would expect the Greens to pick up at least some of those disaffected voters and that might well lead to them getting good Senate results or even winning at least one more lower House seat.
1: I think the Greens are quite bullish about their chances in Griffith, which is held by Shadow Minister Terry Butler. I think she's only got a margin of about 2.8% and they've got a very strong sort of ground game in that seat. You know, I don't have any information about whether their hopes are well-founded, but I know that they they really think they're in with a shot there.
2: So then there are a couple of other independents we should also mention who are a chance of winning lower house seats, a strong chance in the case of Rebecca Sharkey, the sitting member for Mayo in South Australia. And interestingly, although she is backed by Climate 200, as many of the so-called teal independents are, she has come out uniquely, I think, and said that in the event of a hung parliament, she would be likely to back the government on the basis that they are the outgoing government, it seems, mostly. And then there's, as well as Bob Catter, also sitting member and also likely to be returned in Kennedy... There's Craig Kelly, and this is a very unpredictable seat, Hughes in south of Sydney, former Liberal member, of course. That's a very interesting battle where there are two independents, one backed by Climate 200, one not. So that is quite an unpredictable seat. And although he's probably an outside chance of winning, you wouldn't want to write it off right now.
0: And are there any other minor parties that look like they could get a seat in the lower house?
1: Well, potentially not One Nation, as we've been running stories about how they had this amazing last minute scramble to nominate candidates in the lower house. Mm. And in one case, asked a fellow to hand in his nomination form with the electorate left blank and have nominated people in seats in states where they don't even live, like they don't just not live in the seat, they don't live in the state. So possibly not uh, not them.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Next, Broken Records and Broken Promises. And now we come to what we can't get out of our head. Start with you today, Mike. What could you not get out of your head?
2: So I want to talk about Lester Wright, who is a sprinter. I think it's fair to say (laughs) he broke the record this week for the fastest 100 metres, the world record for the fastest 100 metres by someone who's over 100 years old <laughs> in America. <laughs> what's the record? 26.34 seconds.
0: Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> That's faster so, than what I thought you were going to say. So the actual,
2: you know, the all comers world record is obviously below 10 seconds and to do 26 26 seconds I think is pretty good for 100. But I say, I absolutely love this story. Uh, it just made me feel like there's always something to aim at and... If I'm still alive and still walking at 100, I'm definitely going to go and try and crack that record. <laughs> could
0: you beat it now?
2: <laughs> I think I could beat 26 seconds now,
1: yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure I could. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not 100% sure.
0: <laughs> um, Lenore, what couldn't you get out of your head?
1: Um, So mine goes back to the conversation we've just had and it was a story in the Sydney Morning Herald this morning an interview with the Prime Minister where he was asked about um, an uh, ICAC, a federal ICAC or Corruption Commission and his answer was just so extraordinary. I've been thinking about it a lot. He said that members of parliament are accountable to voters and so they should be able to allocate funding for community grants or infrastructure or whatever they like without undue fear of being investigated by public service because if they did, it would disempower elected representatives to do the things that are needed and they can't just hand government over to faceless officials to make decisions. And if they did, it would be some kind of public autocracy. Hmm. I mean, I think it would be some kind of public accountability, but I just thought that was such an astonishing thing to say and so blatant Hmm. uh, that I can't get it out of my head.
0: Yeah, and we wonder why people aren't voting for the major parties, huh?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Refer previous discussion.
0: Um, so we're not going to go near the raw chicken curry?
1: <laughs> well, you can do well, the raw chicken, do chicken curry if you want to. But um, I,
0: but yeah, I have a disturbing picture in my head which I really wish I could get out, but it's the raw chicken curry. Like, there is no way that chicken was cooked. <laughs>
2: look, I can't, but it didn't look like it was cooked, but...
0: It looked like it hadn't even been near a heat source. It could have just been the light bouncing off the chicken. I think it was marinating, (laughs) waiting for the hot pot. Uh, Okay, well, thank you so much for joining us today, Lenore. Thanks, Gabs. Thanks, Mike. Thanks a lot. That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to Full Story in whatever app you're in right now. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert and Camilla Hannon. The executive producers are Miles Martignoni and me, Gabrielle Jackson. Jane Lee will be back with you this afternoon on Full Story for Campaign Catch Up. We'll see you then.